0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we look at a new sports book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author. This week my guest is physicist and sports fan, John Eric Goff. We are discussing his book, Gold Medal Physics, The Science of Sports, published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. Sports science fascinates me. Most likely, learning how difficult sports really are from a scientific standpoint gives me some consolation about my own limited athletic ability. Add to that the fact that I'm not very good with science either, and a book like Gold Medal Physics is doubly intriguing. Eric's book offers plenty of insights into how athletes' bodies function, how balls fly, and how the physical world, whether air or water or mountains, works against them and if there is a lesson from the book and our interview it is that this physical side of sports is very complex and very hard i think this is an important lesson in the current world of sports over analysis we often hear commentators say that an athlete's inability to perform a certain move was due to a mental lapse or a failure of the will A quarterback makes a brilliant throw to win a game, and we hear how he wanted to win. A gymnast fails to stick a landing, and we're told that she lost her focus. By looking at the physics of athletic accomplishments, Eric reminds us of the remarkable strength and dexterity and timing and luck that are involved. I learned a lot from Eric's book, and I enjoyed visiting with him about it. So let's turn to the interview. Eric, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for joining me on the program. Glad to be with you, Bruce. So let's start by having you say a few words about yourself. You have a a great line in your preface where you say that you get as giddy about learning something new in your work as a physicist as you did when you got a hit while playing in Little League. So why don't you tell us about your background in physics and your background in sports and how you brought these two interests together?
1: I'd love to. I, uh, I've always been a sports fan. I played baseball when I was a kid, uh, loved uh, loved baseball, followed it major league level and, and played all little league and, and into uh, early high school, and had a dream of becoming a professional baseball player. I pitched and played third and short, and I wasn't bad, but came to the realization probably around 10th grade that I didn't have quite the chops it took to make it to the major league level. And I always tell people I'm probably one of the few people uh, on the planet who chose physics because something else was more difficult. And uh, hitting a baseball uh, thrown at you at 95 miles an hour with a lot of spin is probably a little tougher than solving the Schrodinger equation. (laughs) So I I love science and I love mathematics and uh, I uh, really got into uh, physics late in high school, and then carried that into my undergraduate years at Vanderbilt. So uh, um, it's just been a, a blessing uh, for a career to be able to combine the love of, of physics
0: and sports, and eventually put all that uh, passion into a book. So I'll I'll say that uh, you know I would get excited when I got hits in little league baseball too. Uh, I, I didn't have the same excitement. With physics, in fact, the, when I took a university physics class as a freshman, I got a C. So I'll warn you that some of my questions are going to be uh, pretty dumb based on my lack of knowledge of physics. So, well, the only question that's dumb is the unasked one.
1: So, uh, I, this coming year will mark 20 years that I've been teaching at the introductory physics level, and I also teach advanced physics level in, in uh, my college, but. I've met many, many uh, first-timers to physics, and they are always shying away from asking good questions, um, and I welcome any kind of question you can ask me.
0: Okay. I think after reading your book, I think I would have done better in university physics if I had 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 you as a professor instead of uh, the person I did have. So anyway, I particularly like the structure of the book, and I'll explain to listeners that in each chapter of the book, you focus on a famous event in recent sports history, and you branch off from that event to introduce principles of physics and then explain what happened in that, uh, in that event based on, based on those principles. So uh, in the b- book's first chapter, for instance, you look at The Play, capital T, capital P, when Cal beat Stanford in the final kickoff return in 1982, and you use that play to then introduce concepts of force and velocity and and vectors you talk about uh katarina vitt you talk about al order throwing the discus uh so so different different chapters or different scenes that sports fans will be familiar with and then you explain the physics behind that but i want to talk with or start with your second chapter which, which looks at doug flutie's last second pass to beat the university of miami in 1984 and uh and what yeah, just found, to be
1: more specific, the uh, third chapter is uh, Doug Flutie, and the second is the, uh,
0: is the play. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry I, about I've that. I've got a,
1: kind of an introductory opening first chapter. But, uh, yeah, chapter three uh, takes us into uh, 1984 and Doug Flutie's Hail Mary.
0: Okay. So what I was particularly interested with that was your discussion of the flight of the football. And so can you tell us uh, what questions you were trying to answer as a physicist in your analysis of, of that, that the flight of the past?
1: Well, just to be clear about analyzing great sports moments with physics, in no way do I want uh, your listeners or anyone who ever picks up a book on sports physics to think that you know a scientist is trying to come along and, and dehumanize or put all these great events into equations and make them a little more, Uh, black and white on a piece of paper. The idea is to sit there and enjoy uh, the majesty of Flutie's Hail Mary and enjoy it over and over and over again. And then sometime later, when you've recovered from the awe of seeing that, to think about the fact that this quarterback was not exactly – the NFL prototype now his mm-hmm. counterpart that day Bernie Kosar was tall you know big arm and all that uh, and Flutie did have a good NFL career but uh, he he used his talent he maximized his talent based on the, the body he was given and it boggled my mind that he could actually throw the ball as far as he did and uh, in a bit of a rain a little bit of a headwind so when I looked at that play over and over again, I tried to understand exactly how it was he could sling that ball uh, about 62 yards
0: down the down the field. Mm-hmm. So you looked at the length of the pass, and uh, but then you were also looking at some, uh, you know, sp- more specific elements of the throw, like the uh, the angle of the pass as it leaves his hand, the speed of the pass as it's uh, uh, as he throws it.
1: That's right, and when he took the snap. Of course, they're uh, a ways down from the end zone, and uh, he's got to give his receivers time to get down the field. So he's got to scramble a little bit, and the receivers had made it almost to the end zone, and he unleashes the ball, and it's in the air about three seconds. And I calculated that the ball left his hand around 60 miles an hour. So You know, next time you're in your car and you're on the interstate and you're going 60 miles an hour, that's about what the ball left Flutie's hand. And it's a beautiful spiral. It left about 38 degrees uh, up from the horizontal and made a very nice, almost parabolic arc. And it turns out when you do that problem as you would have done it in your university physics, uh, when you didn't have any air around, you get an answer that's not, too far removed from the, the real answer by putting the air back into the problem. Um, so even a a first-year physics student could have done a pretty good job analyzing that, that throw. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, about 60 miles an hour at 38 degrees, and uh, three seconds later, uh, it's a
0: celebration like Boston College probably had never seen. Yeah, yeah. So I can't hold up the diagrams that you have in your book of of the past, but but I'm going to kind of plot them out my myself. And so for people who are listening to this while driving, don't don't repeat this. And I'm going to start right. I'm going to violate a, a, a rule of making physics diagrams by starting on the right side because in the clips he throws from right to left. And so, sure. how what was the horizontal distance of the pass? Uh, it's about sixty two yards down the on the field okay so 62 yards and it was in the air how long did you say three seconds about three seconds three seconds okay so and it was what was the the degrees I actually have a protractor Uh, about 38 degrees 38 degrees okay so I can do that okay all right and I actually know how to make curves and and tangents so I'm drawing a parabola the arc of a parabola. Okay, so now, as you explain in the book, this is how it would look if if he threw the ball in a vacuum. That's right. Okay, so three seconds, sixty-two yards, and then what was the what was the height of the pass? The the maximum height it would have reached. Um, it went about thirty-six feet, I I believe. So okay. you know, about twelve
1: yards. Um, right. You know, which is a little more than a first down in, in horizontal
0: distance. Okay.
1: Um, now, in vacuum, he could have let the ball go around 53 miles an hour. Okay. Uh, the 60-mile-an-hour throw is because
0: there's error in the problem. Okay. All right. So he threw it uh, – he actually threw it about 60 miles per hour. and, yeah. now and you,
1: the- you could have gotten it there at 53 miles an hour in the same amount of time. Had there not been any air around
0: okay, okay, so the one thing I want to do now, so I've got my nice perfect parabola, but then you also show how the path changed because then you add in the air resistance, and as you talked about, he threw it into he threw it into a headwind
1: that's right, and the ball with a very nice spiral uh, has relatively small air resistance the uh, had the ball been a one of these wobbly ducks, it would obviously have a lot more air resistance because it'd have a less aerodynamic shape to it. But a well-thrown spiral um, actually makes it through the air with a fairly small amount of air drag. Mm-hmm. And that's not true for things like baseballs and cricket balls and soccer balls. Mm-hmm.
0: So in looking at the, the diagram you do, where you add in the air resistance, so the path of the ball goes somewhat higher at the top. That's right.
1: He'd have to release it at a slightly larger angle to reach the same point.
0: Okay. So then what surprised me is that it still does stick more or less to the arc of a parabola. I had thought, with my limited physics knowledge, that the arc of the ball going into the wind, but then also with gravity playing upon it, was that it would be more like a... uh, More like the arc of a fly ball, you know, where it climbs up and then it has a steeper descent?
1: That's right. But don't forget that fly ball that you see has a lot of backspin
0: on it, typically. Oh, okay. Okay. And that affects the flight. Oh, okay. All right. So I thought that flight would be more of just kind of the dying speed of the the ball as it's going through the air.
1: Well, the air is working uh, uh, on the ball to slow it down. And that removes some energy. You can take away a little bit of the spin. Um, But certainly a baseball has a lot of backspin, and so does a well-hit golf drive. So the trajectories tend to rise up and then fall
0: much steeper on
1: the way down.
0: Okay, okay. So that was something I was going to ask you as well, and you talk about this in a book, that a football in in a tight spiral is pretty aerodynamic, and you just mentioned this, whereas a baseball is not. That's right. A baseball, being much more spherical in shape,
1: doesn't have a nice uh, nose cone forward. It's not uh, anywhere near as aerodynamically shaped as a football. Okay.
0: So then jumping ahead, I want to stick with the physics of flying balls, but jumping ahead to something that you talk about in a later chapter, is that uh, you mentioned that if a baseball didn't have laces, we wouldn't have as many home runs as we do now. That's correct.
1: In in fact, that is counterintuitive for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah,
0: I know. I was surprised by that.
1: Why is that? Um, People would, if you put a smooth ball and a rough ball, I think the, you know, a reasonable guess would be that the smooth ball would be more aerodynamic, that the air could go over it a little easier, let's say. Um, It turns out that that's not true for a lot of objects in certain speed ranges. Now... If you get really fast, like an airplane, uh, there's no advantage to putting stitches or dimples on an airplane. You know, it's nice and smooth for the most part. Now, for sports like baseball and soccer and golf, uh, those surface rough features definitely aid in the in the distance the balls can go. So, for a baseball, if you imagine, you know, a home run is hit around 400 feet. Uh, you're going to drop 10 to 15 percent of that distance without the stitches. Huh. So, 340 to 360 feet or so, um, you know, again, depending on wind and spin and all these other factors. But imagine if most of the 400 hit balls only went 340 feet. Uh, you'd see a lot
0: of fly ball outs, or they'd have to redesign the stadium. So if they add, you know, we always hear this debate about uh, uh, lively balls and dead balls and so forth. So um, if they added more texture to the surface area, that would actually increase the number of of home runs that are hit.
1: It could. um, But I'm not a person that wants to
0: mess with the magical 108 (laughs) double stitches. (laughs) So, but this is an issue that came up last summer with the 2010 World Cup. And during the tournament, there were complaints from players about the new ball that had been designed by Adidas. And I had read some reactions to the player complaints that basically said, you know, get over it, players. It's just a ball. Use it. And But from a physics standpoint, there was an explanation as to why the ball was complaining, or excuse me, why the ball was behaving in unexpected ways and the players were complaining. That's right. The The
1: Jabalani ball was definitely a, a hot topic last summer. And each time the World Cup rolls around every four years uh, for the men, you get a brand new ball. And in 2002, when the World Cup was played in uh, Japan and Korea, they had the Ferranova ball. And that was a standard 32 panel ball that a lot of us have played with. Uh, you can. Buy these fairly cheaply uh, in a store, not necessarily the Fevernova brand. But in 2006, when the World Cup moved to Germany, uh, Adidas introduced it, introduced the Teamgeist ball, and that was a different uh, beast. That had 14 thermally bonded panels instead of 32 uh, stitched panels, you know, the standard hexagons and pentagons, and that reduced the amount of roughness on the ball. And what came along last year with the Jabalani ball was even further reduction in the panels to eight thermally bonded panels. So if you keep making the ball smoother and smoother and smoother, it changes the aerodynamics of the ball and the players are going to notice that right away, especially at the elite levels where You know, matters of inches are noticeable by by the top athletes. So what Adidas did was they put intentional roughness on the ball. If you look at a Jabalani ball and you look at the surface, you will see they have intentionally added grooves to that ball. And they did that with the purpose of getting it roughly as rough as previous balls so that the flight dynamics would be Comparable, so the players wouldn't notice anything uh, too out of the ordinary. Now, every World Cup, when there's a new ball, uh, there are grumblings, especially from the, uh, the goalkeepers, about the new ball. The Jabalani was certainly different from the team guy's ball. The uh, flight dynamics of a soccer ball are uh, quite interesting. If you have a very uh, slow-hit ball... Let's say 20 miles an hour. Uh, The amount of air drag on it uh, isn't terribly large, but something happens between about 20 and 45 miles an hour to drop the amount of drag that you would have for a given speed. Uh, In fluid dynamics, we call this the drag crisis. Got to have these fancy names. After that, you have a fairly stable amount of drag and it's proportional to roughly the square of the speed. So what I like to tell people is if you're in your car and you stick your hand out the window and uh, you're going 30 miles an hour and you kind of feel a certain force on the the hand, you go 60 miles an hour, you double your speed, you're going to feel about four times the force. So what happened was the Jabalani ball came in with less drag than the Teamgeist ball for a given speed. So a lot of these really hard-hit free kicks and corner kicks and, and smashes from, from just outside the box that the goalies were having to contend with actually had less air drag. You couple that with the fact that about half the venues in South Africa last year were played at very high elevation – meaning the air density is a little smaller Mm -hmm. and there's even less drag. So those balls were really moving and goalies
0: noticed it. So was it just speed that was the problem or were they, they, uh, um, behaving erratically in some way when they were flying? There was
1: an issue of an erratic motion of the ball. Even balls that do not spin can actually move side to side a little. Uh, This is what kept Phil Necro Mm -hmm. pitching almost to 50. If you can throw a knuckleball, it has very little spin on it. And if you can get one side of the ball to have a stitch and the other side of the ball to have a smooth area, you can make the ball curve. You can make it wobble a little bit. And what happens with the Jabalani ball is even if it's kicked without spin, there was a little more wobble to it than the ball they used four years ago, the Team guys ball. So the, the instability with the, you know, the forces on the ball uh, was a little greater last year than it was before. So there was some erratic motion. There was some wobbling that
0: uh, was new for the, for the goalies. So I want to stick with soccer balls for a second because you have a chapter on, uh, on David Beckham and his famous uh, free kicks. And, uh, and you explain how it's possible... Uh, or how Beckham is able to bend it when he, when he gives a free kick. So, uh, so how does he do that? Why, how does the ball move? Like, as you show in the book, it, it basically moves like the curve of a banana.
1: That's right. The uh, ball has to have an appreciable amount of side spin. So if you imagine a ball sitting on the ground and you're going to go kick it, if you kick it right through the center, you're not going to spin it. If you kick it a little off center you can make the ball spin now there's a little bit of a compromise there because the more off center you get, the more you can spin it, but the less speed you can give it so the professional athletes uh especially you know the elite ones like Beckham back in his prime, knew optimally where to put the foot uh, or as they would say the boot on the ball and just enough off-center to have enough speed, and just enough off-center to have enough spin to make these fantastic curved kicks. So the ball would have a lot of side spin. So it's moving through the air, say you're looking down on it, it would be spinning counterclockwise for a right-footed kicker like Beckham. What you imagine is on the left side of the ball as you're looking down on it, the air gets whipped around behind it a little more than on the right side of the ball. And it's completely analogous to a boat rudder. If you're looking out the back of a boat and you look down at the rudder, if it's nice and straight, the water just passes by roughly the same on each side of the boat, and you go straight. If you turn the rudder, you know, left or right, it's not symmetric anymore. Water gets deflected one way or the other. And Newton, more than 300 years ago, told us, hey, if an object feels a force from a, a second object, well, the second object's got to feel the same size force, but in the opposite direction. And that's what happens on the soccer ball. If the ball's able to whip the air off asymmetrically, so not just right behind it, but maybe slightly to the right for Beckham, the air gives it a little push to the left. And that's what happens with these great corner uh, free kicks is you see this big curving bend off to the left for a, a right-footed kicker like Beckham. Mm-hmm.
0: And one of the things you also talk about in that section is uh, uh, you you fed in a bunch of data into a computer, right, to do uh, calculations and how to kind of predict the rate of success for someone like Beckham in, in aiming for the upper left corner of, of the net on a free kick.
1: That's right. Um I, a colleague of mine, Matt Carey, in, in University of Sheffield in England, had done some measurements on uh, how well a professional athlete could uh, kick a ball. Basically, you know, the, the human performance aspect of that. So there, there was research out there on how uh, much margin of error we had for a top athlete. So, you know, a Beckham approaching the ball that wants to kick it you know, two inches off center to the right, or whatever, how much margin of error did that athlete have? So we imagined all the different amounts of error that the athlete could have. How much left or right of the spot the athlete was aiming for, was was there how much up or down, which caused the lift angle coming off the foot uh, to vary, Um, and how much did that affect the spin and speed of the ball? So we we calculated all these different kicks, sent them into the computer. We set up a little wall of defenders and put a virtual goalie there, and we had a little target box. And we tried to figure out roughly what the success rate for the the kicker to hit that that target. And we found about one in ten for a free kick. And. One of the things I love about baseball is there are stats for everything. <laughs> uh, every single pitch now, with Pitch FX, is charted. So you can go online and and uh, get to the Pitch FX website, and you can look up, uh, for example, Urban Santana's no hitter yesterday for the Angels, and figure out what every single pitch did. Uh, there is not that quite a statistical anal retentiveness in (laughs) soccer. And we had a hard time finding really good stats for uh, the success rate there. Just anecdotally, from what we've seen watching games, that seems like it's in the ballpark or on the pitch, as it may be.
0: All right, I want to go back one last time to uh, to Flutie's pass, and, and something that you don't discuss in regard to his pass, but you do talk about it later in regards to kicking a soccer ball and also to throwing a discus, is what the athlete does to affect the flight of the object. And so I, I want to ask you to play quarterback coach. What should a quarterback concentrate on to improve the distance of his passes is it the speed of his arm is it the strength of his arm and the force that he puts into the ball as he throws it is it the angle that he throws it so what would you recommend based on the physics of a thrown ball for increasing uh, the length of passes that a quarterback throws
1: well I have been asked that question for over a decade (laughs) and the answer that i've always given and i'm not the first person to give this answer (laughs) many scientists i think will give this answer is spend a lot more time listening to what your coach says than what a physicist tells you (laughs) and by that i mean i can sit here on a computer on a piece of paper and a pencil and i can calculate exactly what the optimum launch angle is, launch speed, et cetera, to get the ball from point A to point B. And I can use all the wonderful laws of physics to do that. There are things that I think athletes can learn from sports scientists like myself uh, because I think information is power and the more you know, the uh, the better you can be. But the overwhelming advice I would give someone is listen to your coach. The coach is going to have... All the techniques down and mastered and be able to provide those to the to the player now what can I say well is it really good to bulk up your arm is it really good to be flexible Um, why does an arm go dead as you age I mean the idea is it's like a spring you have uh, tendons in your body in you know make these connections in your uh, body they store energy like springs so a pitcher early on in his major league career can throw really hard and as you age even if you're spending all these hours in the gym and you're bulking up your arm and you have you know phenomenal muscle strength if you don't have the same flexibility and elasticity in your tendons, you can't store as much energy. So you you just can't throw as hard as you get older. I mean, it's, it's why our, our faces wrinkle as we age. We're, our skin's just losing elasticity. It, it, the spring's getting uh, weaker. <laughs> so the uh, advice I would say is, you know, maintain a good exercise regimen, a good nutrition regimen, stay toned, stay flexible, you know, don't, Kill yourself in the gym, but guess what? All those things are exactly what your nutrition coach, <laughs> your quarterback coach, and your head coach are going to tell you. Okay, I want I to wanna... now to throw a perfect spiral. Of course, I mean you know we can talk about uh, the physics behind that and how the hands got to hold the ball and and how the ball's got to be released and and the motion and all that. But that's a well-established uh, coaching principle as well. So I'm not sure that. Even if I explain to a, a quarterback exactly what the frictional forces involved with the fingertips and exactly the uh, imparting of angular momentum to the ball and all these other fancy physics words, I don't know that that's going to help him more than the coach is.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you were saying in terms of coaches train, the uh, coaches knowing techniques, and and also I was thinking of of the intuition of of great athletes you know especially you were talking in in or you wrote about in the chapter on the stanford band play uh something i found interesting is is the vectors of a lateral and you know i've thrown plenty of laterals and it's it's something you just do intuitively on the on the field and it works and yet in reading that section of of the chapter i realized wow, this is pretty complicated to to get a lateral to go when you're running and the other person's running and you throw a lateral and you have to get it going backward and, and get it to the target.
1: That, that's right. And, and what a lateral allows me to do is talk about uh, this fancy term, frames of reference. So someone sitting in the stands, uh, just not moving with respect to the field, just watching the game, is in a different frame of reference from the person who's running with the ball you know the person running with the ball look you know uh, it might be dangerous to do it but if it looks up in the stands while running uh, would see the stand moving in the other direction you know we, we tend to think of ourselves uh, uh, as at rest so to speak uh, when you're 500 miles an hour on an airplane. Uh, You're able to walk around the cabin and do things normally that you would on on the ground. So uh, you have a sense of being at rest there. Now, when you're running and you're exerting, you, you, you know you're moving with respect to the ground. You don't really perceive yourself at rest. But the point is, when you get ready to release that ball while you're running, it's not just good enough to toss it slightly behind you as you're running. Because the person sitting in the stands, or more importantly the referee, if that ball is seen as actually advancing forward, it's not a legal lateral. And the reason that can happen is, and I'll make it even simpler than trying to think of the you know, the two-dimensional or even three-dimensional lateral physics, just imagine you're in a van uh, with the back door open and you're going down the road at, I don't know, 60 miles an hour, and you're standing in the back of the van, and you're holding, you know, a football. And you toss the ball out the back of the van, but it's 30 miles an hour with respect to you. So it's it would leave your hand at 30 miles an hour if you were standing on the ground and someone measured it with a radar gun. Now, somebody on the side of the ground watching that van go by would see the van going 60 miles an hour in one direction, the ball leaving the player with respect to the player at 30 miles an hour, it's going to look like the ball is going 30 miles an hour in the direction of the van Mm -hmm. because we're adding two different velocities here. So the person on the van says, I threw that backwards. The person on the ground says, no, you threw it forwards. Now, both people are right because they're answering their... Uh, they're addressing that question in their own frames, but what's important in a football game, of course, is you know, the frame of reference of the field. You know, the stationary field. So, uh, and that's a challenge even for referees because they are running. Mm-hmm. So they're not. They don't have the luxury of sitting there at rest like someone in the stands and, and judging where the ball moves with respect to them. They have to watch the ball being pitched note on the field using a, a line marker or something, some reference, where that ball was released and then where it's caught. So they can't really get caught up in their own moving <laughs> frame, They're, you know, just running with them. They have to watch where the ball was, was pitched and where it was caught and basically extrapolate out to the fan's viewpoint.
0: It, it's, a, it's a challenging thing to do. Yeah. yeah. So I want to turn to uh, uh, some Olympic events, and uh, uh, I want to talk about Bob Beeman's uh, world record long jump in the 1968 Olympics, which you have a, a chapter about. And uh, one of the, the big questions, the big controversies uh, about Beeman's jump was uh, how he benefited from the higher altitude at Mexico City. And, and so that's something that you did, you did analyze. And what did you find with that?
1: Well, it is true that, you know, the 68 Olympics took place in, in Mexico City. Now, we, we also need to keep in mind everybody else was jumping in Mexico City, too. Mm-hmm. It's not like they dropped Bob Beeman off <laughs> in Mexico City and, and put everybody else, you know, in New York City or wherever close to sea level. So he had about a two meter per second wind uh, at his back. And the uh, additional um, contributions to the air are legal. That That's within the legal limit. It's at the apex of the legal limit, but it's still within the legal limit for jumping. And the wind, um, I, I think my calculation was a little more than a half a foot. It was about seven and a quarter inches, I believe, uh, that he was able to benefit from Mexico City, uh, in the wind. So he gained a half a foot yeah. from the wind. Okay, uh, and and from the altitude. So it is true that the world record would not have been as long. He still would have had the world record. Okay, uh, no one would have touched him in that event. Um, I mean, you got to subtract that roughly that distance from from everybody else as well. Um, but he was his his jump was. Was just something that just shocked people. I mean, he he just collapsed in in disbelief
0: when when it was announced. Mm-hmm. And you have a line on that section where he said, Beeman did everything humanly possible while in flight to maximize his landing distance." And so, what did he what did he do? How did that affect the physics of his jump? Well, if you think about watching sports,
1: one of the uh, the seductive lures, I think, in watching sports is this belief that the common fan has that, you know, I could do that. I could probably come close to doing that. I could make that shot. I could hit that ball, field that ground, or whatever. When you watch a long jump, you think, okay, what, the guy's just running fast, gets up to this line, and and jumps. There's an amazing amount of technique involved that if you're not watching closely, you're just gonna think the guy runs down and jumps. What happens when you're running, you're mostly upright, and when you get into that pit where you're gonna land, if you notice, long jumpers aren't standing up when they land. They're mostly uh, crouched down and they hit the, uh, the sand with their feet and their you know, bum is very, very close to the ground. So what happens is, they have to do something while in the air to reconfigure their body. But what happens is, not only in the air, but everywhere else, we're constrained by the laws of physics. So if part of your body moves one way, if there has to be some compensation for another part to move another way. So what Beeman did and what athletes do they throw their arms way back behind them when they're in the air and there's a beautiful principle in physics called conservation of angular momentum and it has to do with how things are turning and people use it to explain motions of galaxies and they also bring it down into the atomic and nuclear and subatomic subnuclear world. (laughs) This is a very important uh, principle in physics so You put your arms way back behind you. That's a rotation. Well, something else has to rotate, and what it is, uh, it's the legs. The legs rotated forward. So with very strong abdominal muscles, I mean, you know, we don't uh, underestimate the importance of training, I mean, these, these, these are toned athletes with incredibly uh, you know, strong abdominal muscles who can force their arms back. Their legs are moving forward. It's, it's, it's like, you know, uh, uh, it's almost like watching a stapler. You know, the, the top part gets crunched down with the bottom part. So his head and torso start rotating toward his legs, and his legs are rotating up. Now, when he lands, his feet are way forward. He's not anything close to standing up. He's able to go uh, a little extra distance as opposed to just standing up. So he put everything right. He had a little bit of uh, tailwind. He hit the board just just right. Um, his technique was just essentially flawless in the air, and he was able to uh, get his feet forward and have a little bit of an extra uh, at a distance at the end because of that. Beautiful angular momentum conservation idea.
0: So another Olympic athlete that you analyze in in flight is Greg Louganis and his and his dives and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the questions you you ask in that section on Louganis is how fast he is spinning when he's in a tuck position doing somersaults. So how fast was he going around? So
1: in the the tuck, I to remember here. He was doing three complete turns in uh, about a second and a half. So that takes you down to about uh, two revolutions per second. Uh, if you put that in terms of revolutions per minute, that's going to be, what, 120 revolutions per minute. Okay. So, you know, uh, something comparable to, if anyone listening remembers what albums are, uh, <laughs> You know, we used to play these things at 33 RPMs or 45 or 78, but uh, so this is even faster than that. Huh.
0: So, in that section, you also talk about the physics, uh, physics and water. So, you discuss things like water density, displacement, and buoyancy. And uh, uh, in, in that section, in talking about physics and water, you you bring up something that I always think about when I'm watching diving competitions: is why don't they hit the bottom?
1: Well, the, uh, the rules for, uh, diving when the, uh, the water depth has to be about three and a half meters for the one meter springboard and a little bit more about 3.8 meters for a three meter springboard. Um, those depths are plenty to, uh, ensure that the motion is arrested before the diver is going (laughs) to get injured hitting the bottom. So, what can be done by a physicist uh, and you're certainly not going to build a pool without doing some calculations first. You're not going to build a car or an airplane or anything else without some scale models, computer models, some kind of calculation. If you know what an athlete can do jumping off of a board and how high that athlete can go, you can calculate roughly how fast the athlete's moving. You can then calculate you know the water drag on the athlete, the buoyant force, the weight of the athlete, et cetera, and figure out about how much depth you're going to need, and then you make the pool a little deeper. <laughs> you know you're not going to mm-hmm. put it right at the edge. You know the, the safety factors that engineers talk about. You you go a little bit more. So the, the depth is plenty uh, plenty deep to uh, to make sure that they're not hurt. Um, as soon as you enter the water, um, you have the largest amount of uh, water drag on you. The faster you go, the the more water drag. And then you can make it even larger by putting your arms out, mm-hmm. You know, making your area bigger. Going back to the hand out the car window example, if I stick my hand out the, the window in the airplane wing configuration, I don't feel as much force from the wind is if I turn it 90 degrees and let the wind hit the palm of my hand. So the more area I put in there, the, the greater the drag and, you know, you can slow down a lot faster that way. So you'll you usually see the athletes not only kind of uh, angle their body a little bit and, and do a little bit of a curve, but they'll also put their arms out. Maybe their legs will go out a little bit and, and they mm-hmm. can stop fairly quickly. Mm-hmm.
0: So they do stop themselves. Uh, one thing I was wondering, do you have an idea of if they held that vertical entry position, how far down would they go? Oh, I think they could touch
1: the bottom. I don't think they'd be moving very fast. Oh, okay. I mean, when, when if you're at a public pool, you can jump off the diving board and, and you know, maintain a nice aerodynamic uh dived position into the water and make it to the bottom but you're not moving fast enough to you know to really hurt yourself now you'll notice when you go to pools in the three foot section they'll have a sign that says no diving because if you don't know that as soon as you enter the water you need to pull your arms out or your legs out uh increase your your area there uh then it's not deep enough to
0: slow you down enough and you can get hurt. Mm-hmm. So those signs aren't there just to be annoying. <laughs> so you have another chapter devoted to the, to the Tour de France, and, and uh, with that you do something interesting. Rather than simply explaining what happens, what the athletes are doing, in that chapter you make a model in order to predict the times for stages of the race. So how did you, how did you create this model for predicting stage times? Well,
1: um, one of the great things about being a, uh, a physics professor at a, at a college like Lynchburg College is I get to teach a course called Computational Physics, and I give uh, students the uh, chance to do projects instead of taking final exams in that course. And I had a student named Ben Hannes who came up with uh, uh, an idea of doing something with uh, cycling, and we had done some basic bicycle modeling in, in, during the course. And when his project rolled around, he wanted to do something with a stage of the Tour de France. And after the course ended, I said, hey, let's try this for the whole race. And he had a few little kinks in it, and we got those ironed out, and we did a literature search, and we tried to figure out, you know, how much kind of biker input power into the bike? You know, what, what what's the physiology here? What what kind of air drag does a biker feel, what kind of friction does the tire have on the road and you know we we thought about all these different factors that influence cycling and then we took terrain data that exists on the Tour de France website. They will put stages um, there are 21 stages and they'll put the stage data for each stage and you can see how far the biker's gone at a certain point and the elevation. and not to uh, drag up something from your university physics days, but you can make an incline plane with that, and that's an absolutely standard problem that every first year, first semester physics student solves. Is, I think.
0: Uh, I think I was able to do that
1: actually. <laughs> and really, uh, that's all you need to set it up. And we just put a whole series of these incline planes together, and did this for the entire race. And what we did was we started off our, our cyclist on a uh, uh, you know bike there at the beginning and put the human power input in, got them going, and asked the computer, how long does it take to get to the end of the stage? Now, in today's world, uh, this was back in 2003 that we did this. In today's world, we've got Google Earth and other things where we can even get more points. Uh, but... At that time, we uh, did that for the entire race in 2003. We did it again the next couple of years. And then I did it uh, just in these past three weeks uh, with the 2011 race. And we get pretty close. We get uh, within a few percent. Uh, This year, I had six stages I was able to predict under, under 1%. And only one bad stage. I'm still trying to figure out stage 16 of this past year's race, but uh, everything else we we you know didn't have an error more than more than eight percent. Okay. So uh, it, it's a it's a thrill. I mean, every single day you you have this prediction out there, and uh, and to see him come in and and get pretty pretty
0: reasonable uh, guess is uh it's very thrilling. Uh, knows physics works. <laughs> Yeah, and we will link to your blog uh, from the website, and and I did I did follow it, and I was I was reading your blog entries, and it is quite fascinating. And so, so what is the one stage that throws you? So, is it stage sixteen that you have trouble with? Why Why is that a problem?
1: It threw me because when the time came in, I had about a half an hour or so too slow, and when I looked at the stage except for two little portions at the end, the whole stage is almost all uphill, and it rained. And the average speed on that stage was greater than the average speed for any other stage that had been run to that point, except for the uh, little short uh, team time trial in stage two. So it looked to require an uh, a lot of power beyond what was in my model. So I, I'm still thinking about that one and trying to figure out exactly what the uh,
0: what the issue was there. Mm-hmm. So as you said, the modeling of, of doing an, an incline is something that, as I said, I remember doing it in, in my freshman physics class. But the, the tricky part is the force, correct? Of figuring out how much force the... Uh, the biker and his bike brings into the equation? Well, we have a pretty good
1: model of what the air does on on an object. We we have a pretty good idea of what air resistance is doing. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain uh, the details, but we have a good phenomenological model of, of air resistance we have a pretty good understanding of what the tire is doing with the road. And we know the earth is pulling on the, the cyclist, uh, and the bike. That's you know, what we all call our weight. And we know the roads pushing back on uh, the cyclist perpendicular to the road. And really that's about it. And once we have some basic understanding of those forces, we set up our you know, freshman physics, uh, inclined plane
0: and, uh, put
1: good old Newton's lost
0: into action and, and solve the problem. So I realized I used the wrong term. So the correct term would be power, correct?
1: Well, yeah, the, the amount of power that the cyclist is able to put in is in a very important number. The model is very sensitive to that. Um, it, it's amazing how many calories these cyclists can burn. I mean, they can burn upwards of 5,000 calories in a given stage you know, for some of the longer stages. And they have to eat while they're on their bike. Uh, they do other restroom type breaks while they're on their bike. Sometimes they will receive coaching or you know encouragement from fans. Uh, this past year, someone got knocked into some barbed wire in a very unpleasant looking video. Um, a lot of things happen during the race that we just can't possibly put into our model you know i don't know when it's going to rain you know there there are weather factors that are difficult to to put in so you know we we
0: do the best we can and um turns out it's it's working pretty well so and you get quite a bit of interest in your blog for your predictions of the race
1: i was very humbled and very flattered that um Right now, the count, I believe, is uh, 24 countries. Uh, huh. People from 24 countries have at least, you know, someone in one of those countries has checked out the uh, the blog. Uh, that's what my stats page tells me.
0: So this modeling of of the Tour de France to predict stage times is one example. I guess we can call it applied physics in in, in sports. But you do mention in the book the ways that an understanding of physics is used in designing equipment and in training And from my layman's perspective, it seems as this has become a more prominent part of sports in, say, the last 15, 20 years. And and I'm thinking of the design of golf clubs and the design of body suits for for swimmers. So I'll ask you, as a a physicist, is there a noticeable increase in the number of scientists and engineers and the application of science in sports?
1: Oh, yes, there is. Um, In fact... I would encourage any young listener who's interested in sports science to think about Lynchburg College as an option <laughs> and, and come work with me and do some sports physics uh, and i'm I'm not the only one out there A, a very simple uh, internet search could take you to uh, scores of other people working in this field uh, very quickly and the thing about golf uh its rules are not constrained as anywhere near like what baseball is. You, know, you you read about how a baseball is is constructed it is not the same thing in golf. There's more flexibility with how the the club is designed and as people develop new materials um, the modeling gets better the just even the video technology you know high definition high frame counts per second ways of actually visualizing what's going on Uh, computer modeling as the computer industry continues to give us faster processors and more efficient ways of handling codes and all this we can simulate things on a computer much faster and better than we could 10 years ago so we can put cyclists into a computer and run you know wind over them and and see what the wind's doing all on the computer without ever having to you know, subject us subject a writer to a wind tunnel or anything. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of things that can be done uh, making use of new technologies that allow us to keep inching records, uh, you, know,
0: you know, breaking records and, you know, getting uh, more and more out of human performance. Mm-hmm. So we're almost out of time, but uh, let me ask you, in, in your research and in your ongoing work, what sport or what uh, you know, particular move in a, in a sport, in a competition, do you find most challenging to analyze and explain as a physicist? So I guess what requires you to do the most complicated equations?
1: Well, certainly any time you're trying to incorporate air resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, we've got reasonable phenomenological models of that. If you're really trying to understand what goes on with the air moving around a soccer ball, then we have to do more sophisticated things. We need more sophisticated equations. Um, And that is a part of my my research right now. Um, We've done dust experiments. We've looked at balls in wind tunnels and trying to understand exactly what happens. And things are very strange when you get right down to the surface of the ball. And just to give you a fast example, if you've ever had a ceiling fan and you've noticed it's dusty and you think, well, I'll just get rid of that dust, I'll flip it on high. And you do that and you let it run a few minutes and you turn it off and you find the dust is still there. And the reason is when air starts moving over objects, it gets stuck to the surface a little bit. There's a little cushion, a little layer there that doesn't really have a lot of air moving on it. And that's why you have trouble. You can't blow that dust off your ceiling fan. And that happens on soccer balls and cricket balls and baseballs and other projectiles in sports. You have to really uh, find clever ways to analyze exactly how that air is moving over the ball and how it gets peeled off the ball and, and other, other fascinating things. Like that. These are active areas of research. Huh.
0: And so then, one last question: is there an individual athletic feat that in in your research, you know whether something in the book or, or something else you've looked at that uh, just left you amazed you know perhaps something where a human stretched his or her body to the limit or close to the limit of what is is physically possible uh, Usain Bolt uh, watching
1: Usain bolt run. Uh, makes my jaw drop uh-huh. it takes me a while before i could put my physicist cap on and think about it um I mean, he's got a, a an ideal body size for for that and he's able to maximize uh the gifts that he was given and he's just shattering records left and right in in the 100 meters um watching michael phelps swim again that's somebody who's maximizing the the body they were given and and uh Able to you know the the way he's able to swim
0: and the you know, the dolphin kicking and other things are just just phenomenal to watch. So you mentioned now that uh, my my last question is what are you working on now? And you briefly mentioned you're you're working on the flight of soccer balls.
1: That's right. I I, I still have some uh, research collaboration with a you know, my colleague back in England, and we uh, we've been looking at uh, how the air separates off of soccer balls and you know trying to look at the different types of soccer balls and, and understand exactly uh, uh, what's going on down right next to the surface of the ball and uh, you know these are very interesting fluid mechanics questions that go even beyond just the sports world
0: so then and going back all the way to the beginning when you introduced yourself I have to ask uh, you know I've heard, heard it said that that hitting a ball a pitched ball with a baseball bat, is one of the hardest things to do in all of sports. So, so you talked about uh, moving out of baseball into physics because you found it easier to do. So how hard is it from a, from a physics standpoint to hit a, a pitch ball? Well, a major league fastball
1: is gonna take about four tenths of a second to reach home plate. Now, it has been demonstrated through some good research that the human eye actually cannot track the ball at each point of its motion along that 0.4 seconds of time that it takes the ball to get from pitcher's hand to, to the plate. So we say, you know, coaches always say, keep your eye on the ball. <laughs> you can in places, but you can't, y- your brain cannot do it that quickly. You cannot track the ball at every point along that path. There's a lot to be said for practice, for muscle memory, you know, your your brain is a very powerful organ. I mean, it can calculate uh, things very quickly. So we get a, you know, we, where's the pitcher's release point? A uh, few, you know, images of the ball coming in, and we have a pretty good idea of where to swing. Uh, but that's that that was challenging. Uh, I wasn't a bad hitter, but, you know, you start moving up the ranks, and you realize uh, you got to be you got to be really at the elite level to think about making a living playing baseball
0: <laughs> well so going back to your introduction and talking about your enthusiasm for both sports and physics this this was really quite apparent throughout the book which made it enjoyable to read your your enthusiasm for both subjects was was clear and despite my own limitations in physics i learned a lot from from your book and and one measure of a good book is how often you read things out loud to other people sitting in the room, and, and I read quite a few passages from your from your book to both my wife and my kids. So so thank you again for taking time to come on New Books in Sports to talk about your work. Well, I appreciate that. It's very flattering, and I, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with John Eric Goff, author of Gold Medal Physics, The Science of Sports, published in 2009 by the Johns Hopkins University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from South Asian studies to psychology and political science to popular culture. If you like what you heard here, please link to the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.